Part One, Chapter One of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Carl Manchester, 2007. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Part One Extermination. Chapter One The Former Abundance of Wildlife. By my labours my vineyard flourished, but Ahab came, alas, for Naboth. In order that the American people may correctly understand and judge the question of the extinction or preservation of our wildlife, it is necessary to recall the near past. It is not necessary, however, to go far into the details of history, for a few quick glances at a few high points will be quite sufficient for the purpose in view. Any man who reads the books which best tell the story of the development of the American colonies of 1712 into the American nation of 1912, and takes note of the wildlife features of the tale, will say without hesitation that when the American people received this land from the bountiful hand of nature, it was endowed with a magnificent and all-pervading supply of valuable wild creatures. The pioneers and the early settlers were too busy even to take due note of that fact, or to comment upon it, save in very fragmentary ways. Nevertheless, the wildlife abundance of early American days survived down to so late a period that it touched the lives of millions of people now living. Any man fifty-five years of age, who, when a boy, had a taste for hunting, for at that time there were no sportsmen in America, will remember the flocks and herds of wild creatures that he saw, and which made upon his mind many indelible impressions. Abundance is the word with which to describe the original animal life that stocked our country and all North America only a short half-century ago. Throughout every state, on every shoreline, in all the millions of freshwater lakes, ponds and rivers, on every mountain range, in every forest, and even on every desert, the wild flocks and herds held sway. It was impossible to go beyond the settled haunts of civilised man and escape them. It was a full century after the complete settlement of New England and the Virginia colonies that the wonderful big-game fauna of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains was really discovered. But the bison millions, the antelope millions, the mule-deer, the mountain sheep and mountain goat were there all the time. In the early days, the millions of pinnated grouse and quail of the central states attracted no serious attention from the American people at large, but they lived and flourished just the same, far down in the seventies, when the greedy market gunners systematically slaughtered them and barreled them up for the market, while the foolish farmers calmly permitted them to do it. We obtain the best of our history of the former abundance of North American wildlife first from the pages of Audubon and Wilson, next from the records left by such pioneers as Lewis and Clark, and last from the testimony of living men. To all this we can, many of us, add observations of our own. To me the most striking fact that stands forth in the story of American wildlife, 100 years ago, is the wide extent and thoroughness of its distribution. Wide as our country is, and marvellous as it is in the diversity of its climates, its soils, its topography, its flora, its riches and its poverty, 
nature gave to each square mile and to each acre a generous quota of wild creatures according to its ability to maintain living things no pioneer ever pushed so far or into regions so difficult or so remote that he did not find awaiting him a host of birds and beasts sometimes the pioneer was not a good hunter usually he was a stupid fisherman but the game was there nevertheless the time was when every farm had its quota the part that the wildlife of america played in the settlement and development of this continent was so far-reaching in extent and so enormous in potential value that it fairly staggers the imagination from the landing of the pilgrims down to the present hour the wild game has been the mainstay and the resource against starvation of the pathfinder the settler the prospector and at times even the railroad builder in view of what the bison millions did for the dakotas montana wyoming kansas and texas it is only right and square that those states should now do something for the perpetual preservation of the bison species and all other big game that needs help. For years and years the antelope millions of the Montana and Wyoming grasslands fed the scout and Indian fighter, freighter, cowboy and surveyor, ranchman and sheep herder, but thus far I have yet to hear of one western state that has ever spent one penny directly for the preservation of the antelope and today we are in a hand-to-hand -hand fight in congress and in montana with the wool growers association which maintains in washington a keen lobbyist to keep aloft the tariff on wool and prevent congress from taking fifteen square miles of grasslands on snow creek montana for a national antelope preserve all that the wool growers want is the entire earth all to themselves mr mcclure the secretary of the association says the proper place in which to preserve the big game of the West is in city parks, where it can be protected. To the colonist of the East and pioneer of the West, the white-tailed deer was an ever-present help in time of trouble. Without this omnipresent animal and the supply of good meat that each white flag represented, the commissariat difficulties of the settlers, who won the country as far westward as Indiana, would have been many times greater than they were. The backwoods pilgrim's progress was like this. Trail, deer, cabin, deer, clearing, bear, corn, deer, hogs, deer, cattle, wheat, independence. And yet, how many men are there today, out of our ninety millions of Americans and pseudo-Americans, who remember with any feeling or gratitude the part played in American history by the white-tailed deer? Very few. How many Americans are there in our land who now preserve that deer for sentimental reasons and because his forebears were nation-builders? As a matter of fact, are there any? On every eastern pioneer's monument the white-tailed deer should figure, and on those of the great west the bison and the antelope should be cast in enduring bronze, lest we forget. The game birds of America played a different part from that of the deer, antelope and bison. In the early days shotguns were few and shot was scarce and dear. The wild turkey and goose were the smallest birds on which a rifleman could afford to expend a bullet and a whole charge of powder. It was for this reason that the deer, bear, bison and elk disappeared from the eastern United States, while the game birds yet remained abundant. With the disappearance of the big game came the fat steer, hog and hominy 
the wheat-field, fruit-orchard, and poultry galore. The game-birds of America, as a class and a mass, have not been swept away to ward off starvation or to rescue the perishing. Even back in the sixties and seventies, very, very few men of the North thought of killing prairie chickens, ducks and quail, snipe and woodcock, in order to keep the hunger wolf from the door. The process was too slow and uncertain, and besides, the really poor man rarely had the gun and ammunition. Instead of attempting to live on birds, he hustled for the staple food products that the soil of his own farm could produce. First, last, and nearly all the time, the game birds of the United States as a whole have been sacrificed on the altar of rank luxury, to tempt appetites that were tired of fried chicken and other farm delicacies. Today, even the average poor man hunts birds for the joy of the outing, and the pampered epicures of the hotels and restaurants buy game birds and eat small portions of them solely to tempt jaded appetites. If there is such a thing as class legislation, it is that which permits a few sordid market shooters to slaughter the birds of the whole people in order to sell them to a few epicures. The game of a state belongs to the whole people of the state. The Supreme Court of the United States has so decided, Gear versus Connecticut. If it is abundant, it is a valuable asset. The great value of the game birds of America lies not in their meat pounds, as they lie upon the table, but in the temptation they annually put before millions of field-weary farmers and desk-weary clerks and merchants to get into their beloved hunting togs, stalk out into the lap of nature, and say, Begone, dull care. And the man who has had a fine day in his painted woods on the bright waters of a duck-haunted bay, or in the golden stubble of September, can fill his day and his soul with six good birds just as well as with sixty. The idea that in order to enjoy a fine day in the open a man must kill a wheelbarrow load of birds is a mistaken idea, and if obstinately adhered to it becomes vicious. The outing in the open is the thing, not the blood-stained feathers, nasty viscera and death in the game-bag. One quail on a fence is worth more to the world than ten in a bag. The farmers of America have, by their own supineness and lack of foresight, permitted the slaughter of a stock of game-birds which, had it been properly and wisely conserved, would have furnished a good annual shoot to every man and boy of sporting instincts through the past, right down to the present and far beyond. They have allowed millions of dollars worth of their birds to be coolly snatched away from them by the greedy market-shooters. There is one state in America, and so far as I know only one, in which there is at this moment an old-time abundance of game-bird life. That is the state of Louisiana. The reason is not so very far to seek. For the birds that do not migrate, quail, wild turkeys and doves, the cover is yet abundant. For the migratory game-birds of the Mississippi Valley, Louisiana is a grand central depot, with terminal facilities that are unsurpassed. Her reedy shores, her vast marshes, her long coastline and abundance of food furnish what should be not only a haven, but a heaven for ducks and geese. After running the gauntlet of guns all the way from Manitoba and Ontario to the sunk lands of Arkansas, the shores of the Gulf must seem like heaven itself. The great forests of Louisiana shelter deer, turkeys and fur-bearing animals galore, 
and rabbits and squirrels abound. Naturally, this abundance of game has given rise to an extensive industry in shooting for the market. The big interests outside the state send their agents into the best game districts, often bringing in their own force of shooters. They comb out the game in enormous quantities, without leaving the people of Louisiana any decent and fair quid pro quo for having despoiled them of their game and shipped a vast annual product outside to create wealth elsewhere. At present, however, we are but incidentally interested in the short-sightedness of the people of the Pelican State. As a state of old-time abundance in killable game, the killing records that were kept in the year 1909-10 possess for us very great interest. They throw a startling searchlight on the subject of this chapter, the former abundance of wildlife. From the records that with great pains and labour were gathered by the State Game Commission, and which were furnished me for use here by President Frank M. Miller, we set forth this remarkable exhibit of old-fashioned abundance in game, A.D. 1909. Official record of game killed in Louisiana during the season, 12 months, of 1909-10. to 10. Birds. Wild ducks, sea and river, 3,176,000. Coots. 280,740. Geese and Brant, 202,210. Snipe, Sandpiper and Plover, 606,635. Quail, Bob White, 1,140,750. Doves, 310,660. Wild Turkeys, 2,219. Total number of game birds killed, 5,719,214. Mammals. Deer, 5,470. Squirrels and rabbits, 690,270. Total of game mammals, 695,740. Fur-bearing mammals, 1,971,922. Total of mammals, 2,667,662. Grand total of birds and mammals, 8,386,876. Of the thousands of slaughtered robins, it would seem that no records exist. It is to be understood that the annual slaughter of wildlife in Louisiana never before reached such a pitch as now. Without drastic measures, what will be the inevitable result? Does any man suppose that even the wild millions of Louisiana can long withstand such a slaughter as that shown by the official figures given above? It is wildly impossible. But the darkest hour is just before the dawn. At the session of the Louisiana Legislature that was held in the spring of 1912, great improvements were made in the game laws of that state. The most important feature was the suppression of wholesale market hunting by persons who are not resident of the state. A very limited amount of game may be sold and served as food in public places, but the restrictions placed upon this traffic are so effective that they will vastly reduce the annual slaughter. In other respects also, 
the cause of wildlife protection gained much, for which great credit is due to Mr. Edward A. McIlhenny. It is the way of Americans to feel that because game is abundant in a given place at a given time, it always will be abundant, and may therefore be slaughtered without limit. That was the case last winter in California during the awful slaughter of band-tailed pigeons, as will be noted elsewhere. It is time for all men to be told in the plainest terms that there has never existed, anywhere in historic times, a volume of wildlife so great that civilised man could not quickly exterminate it by methods of destruction. Lift the veil and look at the stories of the bison, the passenger pigeon, the wild ducks and shorebirds of the Atlantic coast, and the fur seal. As reasoning beings, it is our duty to heed the lessons of history, and not rush blindly on until we perpetuate a continent destitute of wildlife. End of chapter 1 of section 1